Good morning, Four Oaks Church. It's Wednesday, February 1st. Can you believe it? January has evaporated, but we're here. Glad you have joined us for this morning's edition of the Four Oaks Pastoral Devotional. Now, we are walking through the book of Matthew, and the way we're walking through the book of Matthew is a little different than the way we walked through the book of Romans over the past year. With Romans, we preached the sermon on Sunday and came in after the fact the following week and sort of picked up the pieces, so to speak. We looked at different theological points and emphases and themes. We talked about application points, took questions um, about things that maybe we didn't get a chance to really hit that particular Sunday. But now we're sort of doing the reverse. We are covering the passage we're going to be preaching on the week prior. So in that way, we're getting our hands a little bit more on the text. We're, we're working through it together. As I'm working on the sermon and the passage for that week, um, I'm in a sense kind of sharing things that I'm learning, tools that I'm using, um, encouraging you to sort of dig into the word um, for yourself instead of as being sort of a consumer or all we're, we're in a consumeristic culture. That's the same thing that happens when it relates to spiritual resources. There's teachers, podcasts, sermons everywhere. But in doing it this way, it's really facilitating a process where we're learning to study the Word of God for ourselves. And we are up to the baptism of Jesus in Matthew 3, 13 through 17. So let me read that passage again for us, briefly review where we've been, and then continue down the pathway of exegesis here. Then Jesus, verse 13, came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So we left off last time really asking that question, why would Jesus need to be baptized? John is performing a baptism of repentance and confession of sins. Um, we know Jesus is sinless. Matthew's already signaled that to us in Matthew 1, that, he's, that Jesus is born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Why would Jesus need to be baptized? And essentially, and I'm going to, you can go back and listen to yesterday's devotional, but essentially what it boils down to is that Jesus' baptism here is something both similar and dissimilar to what the baptism of John was to the people. They were getting baptized for the forgiveness of sins, for repentance. Jesus is being baptized as a representative, as, a, as someone who is going before the people, who's someone who is going before us. When, in fact, Jesus tells John, I need to be baptized by you to fulfill all righteousness, he's most likely draw that word fulfill by the way is a is a prophetic word it means in in conjunction with or in accordance with a, a particular scripture he's probably referencing Isaiah 53:11 
where Jesus is depicted as the righteous servant who is going to suffer on behalf of his people. And I think Jesus is alluding to the fact there that he is going to be the second Adam. He is going to be our champion. He is going to do what the first Adam could not. Jesus is going to fulfill all the righteous requirements of the law. And so instead of standing before us as a fellow sinner, he's standing before us as a fellow human being, um, granted, also God, but one who is going to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And he is going to walk through this life obediently and in, in the righteous to fulfilling all the righteous requirements of the law so that he could indeed suffer in our place. What we're going to see next week he immediately goes from here to the temptation in the wilderness, showing that he, in fact, is the better Adam, that he uh, he is the better Israel. He does withstand the temptations of Satan and is obedient to the Father. So, so knowing that, then we have then we're, we're as we move through the text, we want to we want to try to zero in here these next couple of days on what's ha- what's happening with the other two members of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, and then God the Father. Because there is, there, there, this is one of the clearest passages in all of Scripture which show us the inner workings and the inner connections of the three persons of the Godhead. And we have to ask why. And I think we will get a sense of why when we understand, and, and here's this operative term, this is much more than a private commissioning service, okay, where Jesus is baptized and the Father speaks and sends Jesus out. This is much more than a private commissioning service. This is a public coronation, right? This is done publicly. So we know from the other Gospels, Jesus is coming down with the people He's part of the entourage. He's part of the group that's made the journey. It was probably about 60, 70 miles from Nazareth to where John was baptizing. And the reason we believe this is public, there's several reasons from the other parallel passages in the Gospels, but the fact that it has here a visible demonstration of the Spirit's power, because it has an, an audible speaking from the Father, we have to ask, why is that the case? Well, it's, it's the case because um, God is wanting to publicly uh, confirm who Jesus is. God is wanting to put his stamp of approval publicly for the people that this indeed is the Messiah. And, and, as we're thinking about, for example, the coronation that's going to be coming up for King Charles in England, that's a very public thing. And, and part of the publicness of it, it is a, a bestowing and a recognition of, of authority and status. And the way that God af- confirms this status on his son is by this movement of the spirit and by his movement in speaking. So let's talk about the spirit today. We'll talk about God the Father tomorrow. So here it says, when Jesus was baptized, verse 16, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest on him. Now we have to think what, 
how are we to think about this? Is is the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove? Is the Spirit's power coming like a dove? Was there actually a physical dove? Why why is the Spirit associated with the dove? So so there, there's several questions here. What what what's happening here? Now we're we weren't there. We don't know exactly what's happening, but there seems to be with this idea of heaven opening up. Okay. Um, that there is some sort of parallel, I think, to the vision in Ezekiel 1. Remember, Ezekiel's down by the water in Babylon. The heavens are opened up. The Spirit of God rests upon him, and then he has this vision. Now, I'm not saying that this is all a vision. What I am saying is that this, is, this I think, is meant to evoke, to remind us of that very famous calling that Ezekiel had which was by the water, which was by the Spirit, and the heavens being opened up. Now, was this accompanied by light? Very possibly some kind of glory. We don't know. But there does seem to be, um, this, it says, the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Now, other parallel accounts in the other synoptics, um, there, there's various ways to interpret this. Is the Holy Spirit, did it come back? Did he come bodily in the form of a dove, or was the dove simply a sign that the Spirit is present? It does seem to be um, a literal dove, okay? Um, and, and I think we, we can get a little traction in understanding why there is a, a dove or a visible sign of the Spirit's presence when we compare it, okay, to something like Acts chapter 2. So, so flip over to Acts chapter 2 for a second. The coming of the Holy Spirit. So, so let's read in verse 1 from Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So again, what's happening there? Well, there's a mighty rushing wind. There's a visible sign of the Holy Spirit's presence. Here, it's the wind and it's these tongues of fire or flames of fire. Now again, is the Holy Spirit in the fire? I don't, I, th that's not the main point. Is the Holy Spirit in the dove? That's not the main point, okay? The main point is that there are physical signs that are affirming the real presence of the Holy Spirit. And just as in Acts, where these tongues of fire were meant to give credence, authority, to, to what the speaker, Peter, in this situation was saying, so too in this passage, back, we're now back to, to Matthew, that this dove and this opening up and the rushing wind and all those things that accompany it are meant to be physical, tangible signs of the very real spiritual presence of Christ. And they would have been unmistakable. That's the point. They would have been un unmistakable. They would have been an attestation to John's proclamation, and he says this in the Gospel of John, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
Jesus is being baptized as our representative to fulfill all righteousness, and this is one of God's means of confirming Jesus's coronation, that he, in fact, is the coming king, that he is qualified, he has status to represent um, his people as their second Adam, as their representative. And so here, again, we see this functioning of the Holy Spirit is to illuminate Christ, is to magnify Christ, is to prepare the way for the prepare the way for Christ. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is thus the same now. The Spirit of you don't have the way to know if something is from the Spirit of Jesus, that's what the Holy Spirit is, the Spirit of Jesus, does it magnify God? Does it bring peace? Does it bring unity, love, the fruit of the Spirit? Does it bring power? Um, if what you're witnessing is confusion or um, conflict or disunity or division, these are not works of the Spirit. And this is simply one of the ways that God is manifesting and making known and uh, giving his sort of his divine stamp of approval on this very public coronation of the Messiah King is through the movement of his spirit. Now, we want to be thinking and praying, do we not? And remembering that this same Holy Spirit that anointed Jesus is the same Holy Spirit that lives in us. That's amazing. What a continuity, right? This isn't just something for 2,000 years ago. This is something that's part of the ongoing ministry of Christ to us, is to empower, direct, um, lead us through his spirit, which indwells us as believers, which is just an amazing thing. Okay, that's our lesson for today. Tomorrow, we're going to talk about this last part of the verse, where the Father speaks to the crowds about the Son. All right, let's pray. Lord... We do pray that you would empower us with your Holy Spirit today. We do pray, Father, that we would be able to recognize the work of your Spirit and to discern it from the work of Satan or the work of the flesh or, or the world. And you would just sow into us the seeds of your word by your Spirit to produce in us godliness, righteousness, and a peace that surpasses all understanding. Lord, we ask these things in your Son's name. Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks, everybody. See you back here tomorrow.